welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Chris Mitchell, who directs our community broadband work here at ILSR, as well as Representative Seth Barry of Maine, actually of, is it Bodenham? Great. Okay. I'm impressed. <laughs> I can't, can't always nail the, uh, the New England place names. I'm glad I got that one. Uh, anyways, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. I think to get us started, could you share what your current priorities are for building local power in Maine? Sure. So um, as a member of the state legislature and as the House chair of the Joint Standing Committee on Energy, Utilities and Technology, the clean energy transition and also the, um, the, the information age and the flow of information are two really critical components that we oversee. And I've been deeply involved for, uh, I guess, a year and a half now in an effort to take back our power. And by that, I mean to create a a democratic consumer-owned utility for our electrical grid. Um, Maine is a restructured state, so the utility delivers, does not generate um, electricity. And I think the the telecommunications infrastructure and the electrical infrastructure are a lot alike in that you you really want to have a neutral kind of open access network for the flow of hopefully good information, good democratic information and good clean energy, right? These two things are uh, directly connected. They're actually on the same poles together. And uh, my committee oversees that. But this this effort to create a, a consumer-owned utility for Maine and to join Nebraska as one of the, we would be the second state to have entirely consumer-owned utilities is really what I've been focused on primarily for the last year and a half. You know, every bill relating to my committee's um, topics come before our committee, but um, this has been my, my, my real passion, and I'm really lucky to be joined by a, a huge coalition that's been working on this with me. So let me ask you, because when I first met John Farrell, before either of us was working for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we were in grad school together, and I was learning about renewable portfolio standards, which is the minimum amount of electricity that utilities had to get from renewable sources. And at the time, I seem to recall Maine was getting almost all this power already from relatively green sources, from hydropower. And so, you know, I'm just curious, why is electricity something that is important to organize around in Maine? Yeah, Maine is pretty good in terms of our renewable portfolio standard. You're right. We have about 40% of our electricity is currently renewable. We do include the burning of biomass, so wood chips in that. Some of that is wood that is harvested very sustainably or is really byproducts of our lumber mills and paper, paper processing. But, you know, you can make an argument that's not entirely green. And, and then um, we just passed, very excitingly, we passed a bill to get us to 80% renewable procurement by the year 2030, um, with a goal of 100% by 2050. Um, but keep in mind, that's electricity. And it is it doesn't represent necessarily the the shift to electricity for the for transportation or the shift to electricity for building heating and cooling 
or for industrial processes. Those are the, the much bigger contributors to greenhouse gas from Maine's economy and from uh, the economy of most states. So we need to electrify everything. That's really the, the, the way that we make our clean energy transition in Maine and, and around the world. Electrify transportation, electrify building heating and cooling, electrify industrial processes. And that is going to have a dramatic, uh, massive implication, set of implications for the grid, the electrical grid. And we need a grid that, that we can afford, one that we can count on to be there for us, and one that we can control. And right now, we, we really have none of those things in our current investor-owned, you know, uh, for-profit, uh, multinational monopoly model. I'm wondering if there was already kind of a public push towards this to take over this private utility? Or what's your sense of how bad people want this right now? There really, until until I decided a couple of years ago that, that I wanted to introduce this bill, there really wasn't a movement for it, but I'm really pleased with the response. And a movement um, has grown up and is, is growing bigger all the time. You know, there was a lot of frustration over the, the last 14 years since I first came into the legislature about Central Maine Power, our largest for-profit monopoly utility, and the kinds of political positions that they took. You know, they would vigorously and successfully oppose efforts to promote rooftop solar so that people could have a little bit of their own, you know, green, clean power destiny. They would vigorously oppose efforts to promote energy efficiency and conservation. And, you know, we, we have managed to do some really good things in those areas, despite the utility, um, but their lobby and, and, and their legal team and their engineers and, 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 and others who appear at the Public Utilities Commission are very well paid, very sophisticated, uh, very numerous, and um, they get what they want a lot of the time. So, uh, there was frustration, but there was never, uh, until now, this this really um, unifying movement to create an alternative, and that's what's been exciting about this this new moment well, in Maine's history. It seems history. like if you're going to be pushing so many new sales in the direction of electricity, because as people are transitioning from other technologies, you're going to, I mean, more than double, perhaps, the electricity demand of the state. You really want to make sure that that's going to a responsible entity that's going to be invested in Maine's future and not just trying to extract wealth out of Maine. That's so true. And I think, yeah, at least double, you know, quite possibly triple the, the, the capacity of the grid that's required. And that's where their profits really come in is how much how much infrastructure do they build? You know, their equity investors get, you know, double digit interest off of every pole, every wire, every substation, every transformer that they invest in. So they love investment, you know, and they brag about it. But it's 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 they're not doing it, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts, right? They're making buckets of money, and it's all being extracted from our state. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The the amount of power, in fact, um, that flows over those wires may be four or five times as much as what we're consuming right now by the year 2050, if what we really want to do is decarbonize. And that is our goal. That's our stated goal. You know, we can do that. We can get there. And if we use the the tax-exempt lower-cost financing of a consumer-owned utility, we can keep our money in Maine instead of pumping it out of the state to, you know, overseas investors who don't even, you know, know where Maine is, much less, you know, care about us. And we can we can keep our money here and we can afford to make that clean energy transition much more rapidly 
and, and to the benefit of, you know, lower income Mainers who might otherwise really struggle in this transition or industry that might otherwise really struggle. You know, we have a lot of industries like the paper mills or the shipyards that are very sensitive to energy costs. So this really does come down to whether we can do what we hope to do, what we say we want to do, or maybe not accomplish that, maybe only get halfway there. The other thing that I feel like we need to bring up is that it's not like this is a company that's doing a good job and just happens to be making a lot of money. This is a company that has failed to provide a reliable product. Miserably. They have failed miserably. They have uh, recently um, been rated by J.D. Power and Associates, which does an annual ranking, and uh, they used to brag about their scores. They were rated in November of 2019 as being the worst of all 87 large utilities in the country by far. Imagine a scatter plot where there are 86 dots that are all <laughs> at the top half of the y-axis, and then there's one dot that's way down at the very bottom of Almost the y-axis. Almost like a mistake. In other words, they're they're an extreme outlier. Um, and and the, my favorite part about this is that upper that upper half where the all other 86 are clustered. The lowest of those is PG&E, which is, uh, as you may recall, um, the utility in Northern California that killed 85 people in the campfire in Paradise, California, um, was convicted of six felonies for gas explosions that killed six people in 2010, went bankrupt twice in the last uh, uh, two decades, was, you know, found to be guilty of, you know, whining and dining, you know, uh, Public Utilities Commission uh, leaders, I mean, all kinds of really shady stuff. And yet, pg and &E is uh, a whole lot better than Central Main Power, according to the, the business customers that were surveyed. Yeah, the bar is on the ground and you are somehow now below the ground, like burrowing underneath. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They have they have gone to like the um, the eternal hell of you know damnation by their their customers. That's that's where they rate with their customers right now. Um. So uh, the reason we have Chris on this interview today is because we're going to bring this around to broadband. What does taking over a private utility have to do with improving broadband access in a state? Everything, in my view. Um, you know, uh, actually, a really cool article just came out in Governing Magazine. I don't know if you guys subscribe to that one, but it's about Mississippi, which if you think about it, Maine actually has a lot in common with Mississippi. You know, we're relatively low income, relatively rural. You know, we, we have a, a bit of a tourism economy. You know, we both have shipyards and we also both have a little bit of a uh, Francophone. Uh, I guess a lot of that's in Louisiana, but um, some of the uh, the Acadian uh, diaspora ended up down there. Anyway, in a weird way, we're kind of like cousins. You know, they're like the conservative cousin of Maine. And Mississippi just uh, freed up their co-ops, their electrical co-ops to invest in telecommunications and to provide internet services to their customers. And I thought, what a cool thing that Mississippi's doing. And it's, it's getting a lot of, uh, of attention around the country now that that governing article's come out. And that's the kind of thinking that I'm really interested in pursuing. You know, if you, if you do own the polls, if you do, you know, own the wires, then there's a lot of synergy there for deployment of high-speed internet in the rural areas typically 25 to 40% of the cost is just attaching to the poles. And some of that is, is cost that can't be avoided, but some of it is also, you know, uh, profit, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the company, if the electrical company owns the poles and a new, you know, spunky new ISP wants to, wants to attach fiber to those poles, they're probably going to pay 
a little more than just what it costs to put them on, right? They're going to pay some profit as well. If we can bring down the cost and 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 also be more proactive about how we configure the wires on the poles in the first place, you know, a little more one-touch make-ready type philosophy, then we can really speed the deployment of, of high-speed internet to the home and to the business in a way that Maine desperately needs. I mean, we are we are the worst or at least one of the top, you know, the worst five in the country when it comes to the truly high speeds and, and rural access to the internet. And that, that's huge. I mean, if we hope to be a part of the economy of the future, even the economy of the present, we need to address that. Yeah, I was, was wondering if there's any specific stories you could share right now. I'm sure recently it's been even more top of mind with the pandemic. Perhaps your own amazing access at home. <laughs> I, <laughs> the I reason you're not at home right now. <laughs> you're right. I am talking to you from my uh, my workplace, and I've had to commandeer a, a separate office. We we have shared workspace in the lab. I work for a biotech lab, and my that's my day job. And um, you know, it, it's it we we really value working together and being close by and having kind of a modular approach to space. But obviously, you know, the pandemic has changed everything. So I had to commandeer um, kind of a separate space to to do my work, and and that includes I'm lucky to be able to kind of fold in some of my legislative work. That that way because at home I'm only two I'm only two miles away at home but I've got three down and 768 you know 0.768 up on a good day and I've got two kids there who have been trying to do distance learning from their, with high school I've got a sister who lives with us that really likes to watch Netflix and I've, my wife has also been working from home she's an ed tech in the local school system and has had to you know have meetings with students you know through video conferencing and whatnot so bottom line you know, I, I, it's just incredibly difficult at home. And I live three miles from the highway between the state capital and the largest city in the state. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm halfway between Portland and Augusta, and I'm only three, three miles off the highway. So imagine if I were in the north woods of Maine. From Augusta, where the state capital is located, I can get in a car and drive for five hours to the north and see nothing but, but woods and mountains and streams and lakes. And there are people that live there, and if they have internet at all, they're they're fortunate. There's about 15% of Maine that's got that's got nothing that could remotely be called high speed, and you know probably don't have cell phone access when when it's cloudy outside either. Maine does have some things going for it though, and I want to want to note some of those in, in the broadband yeah. space in particular, um, despite the fact that there's a lot of challenges. But I also wanted to throw in regarding the polls that one of the things people also forget is that there's a rental fee every year that you're paying on every poll that you're on. And so owning the polls um, can make the business case uh, better over time, as well as just that upfront cost of getting on the polls. So it's it's really quite nice to, to own the polls and have that freedom to make decisions. Owners make decisions is what I often think about. Yeah. So Maine has um, so much going forward in the, in the in sort of the broadband future. Uh, it has the three ring binding which was put together by local folks that are doing great jobs. You've got some great local uh, private uh, independent companies that are doing good work. Um, you have the Maine Broadband Coalition, which is one of the best organizations we see in any states for organizing this. Um, and then let me tell you this from the outsider, and you can laugh at me, but it seems to me like the Maine legislature gets it in ways that others don't. Um, you know, most of what we talked about hasn't really tapped into the fact that that you have played an important role in the legislature. You've been there for a while. And it's looked to me like Republicans and Democrats alike all agree we should spend more on broadband. When Governor LePage was in, there was an effort to spend millions of dollars on broadband. Um, And yet the state hasn't really gotten around to it. And so I'm curious with all the things that you do have, all the interest that's, that's there, how come the state hasn't actually been able to do more 
to I was with you right up until you said that the the main legislature gets it and and then I I have to I have to slightly disagree because um, we did have um, we have we do have a lot going for us and there has been progress we have this also this wonderful thing called the connect Maine authority which you know we and I think Tennessee was one of the, the earlier states along with us to to create an entity that would do planning grants as well as infrastructure grants to communities that wanted to sort of you know take broadband into their own hands try to provide it bring it to their rural communities yeah let me plus one that I definitely agree the planning aspect is yeah, important right it is and and so connect Maine is this wonderful thing but it, you know it, it, it has a budget which which is ridiculous. You know, it's been like a million bucks a year. You know, it's like a dollar per Mainer per year to help to bring that last mile. Yes, we have this good middle mile, but the last mile we're just we're just devastatingly bad at. It's always been, really since we created Connect Maine back in 2007 or so, it's been an issue of finance. You know, we just need to put put money to it um, because we've got the model, we've got everything else in place. But financing the Connect Maine Authority has been unfortunately a partisan issue, and uh, we've tried to fund it through budgets. We've tried to fund it through bond issues. And generally, my friends on the Republican side of the aisle have just not been willing to, to actually put their money where their mouth is. They talk about broadband, but then they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, the, but the private the private sector can do that. We just need to, you know, we just need to free them up. You know, we just need to reduce cut red tape and then they'll they'll take care of it. And we all know that that's that doesn't work. Uh, the, the finances aren't there. The private sector themselves is telling us it, it's going to take money to, to, to do this, to close the financing gap. But there's just been a disconnect and, and I think, frankly, a lack of attention to the real needs of, of rural communities, which, ironically, my Republican friends tend to represent more often than, than the Democrats do. So, you know, they have been voting against the interests of their constituents in many cases by not being willing to come along on a broadband bond. We had a proposal last fall that would have proposed that would have put uh, just 15 million towards broadband. And that was shot down on a party line vote. It takes two thirds of both the House and the Senate to approve a bond. So we have to have both parties involved. The one Republican who voted for that bond last fall was my friend Tom Schofield, who really gets it. And there are people like Tom in the in the caucuses who, you know, want to do more and have learned about it, have taken the time. Tom is also the co-chair with me, uh, one of the co-chairs of the nonpartisan broadband caucus of the legislature. That's a new thing. So we're making some progress there. And I'm optimistic. We, we did ultimately, by pairing the bond with transportation, uh, which my Republican colleagues generally do vote for, we were able to get a bond passed this spring. And almost everyone voted for that because it included $100 million for trans for transportation and $15 million for broadband. And the, the people of Maine will get to vote on that bond, the, the $15 million for, for for broadband, in July. That's July 14th. And that's exciting because even though it took, you know, some some compromises to to get us to that, it will be the first time that Maine people have been able to vote on a bond to dedicate money to broadband infrastructure. You know, every year we spend a hundred million on roads and bridges. And every year the people of Maine buy, you know, seven to 70%, seven out of 10 margin will approve the transportation bonds. I predict a similar support for the broadband bond. And, you know, I, frankly, we need to be bonding at a scale like that for the next five years. We did a hundred million a year, like we're doing for transportation. In five years, we'd be done. We'd have fiber to every home, every business. And once you have fiber, you know, there are no potholes to fix, to, to fill in. You know, it's not like, it's not like roads, you know, you, you're done for quite a while. And we don't even know the, the true limits of fiber infrastructure um, in terms of the speed it can handle. Um, it's very durable, very lasting. So, you know, I, I, I do think that once people 
kind of get their heads around it. We can really make Maine a, a destination for people that, you know, can work from anywhere or study from anywhere or provide telehealth from anywhere and want a beautiful state with, you know, all kinds of, you know, quality of life opportunity, you know, lakes and mountains and rivers and hiking and wonderful restaurants and coastal towns and boating, um, skiing, you know, you name it. It's a great place to live. But, you know, a lot of young people look at it and say, I, I, I can't do Millinocket. You know, it, it's a great place, but I, I can't, you know, run my graphic design business out of Millinocket. Well, let me let me just note. Um, I fully agree with what you said. I, I feel like it's always important to note that there are some uh, periodic upgrades that are required to to keep the fiber running. I know that you appreciate that, and it's true. They're nowhere near the cost of roads, but we shouldn't let anyone get the impression that they're zero. Because then, colleagues of mine who are often engineers and very pay attention to details very closely, <laughs> they will say, "No, you do have to pay money over time." And, it's true, but compared to roads and many other physical yeah. infrastructure like bridges, it is not that significant of an amount. You know, one of the one of the things I wonder about is whether that's actually one of the challenges that you identified, which is that there's probably a lot of people in Maine who don't want people from New York, Connecticut, Boston to come up and spend a lot more time in these towns. I'm, I'm guessing that it, it's, there's a little bit of a split depending on whether you're there for the solitude and the old, you know, the, the more rustic feel, or if you're a shop owner, that's dependent on, you the know, I, you, you, that's true. Um, there is a certain, um, you know, love hate relationship with the, the, the tourists who, you know, frankly, you know, keep our economy afloat. And uh, this notion that people from away are, you know, are different or, you know, don't, don't understand us, but, you know, there. I think the the overriding concern for Maine right now is we are the oldest state in the nation, and we don't have a future. You know, we're dying faster than we're than we're giving birth, and you know, the state really doesn't have an economic future. It looks very it looks very scary if we don't keep our young people here in Maine, and also attract other young people as well. We could attract. We could keep. We could build a wall, you know, around the entire state and not let anybody out, um, any of those young people, and we'd still be shrinking our workforce. And, you know, that, that's, that's a sobering uh, reality. And I, I think that, again, folks who have been paying attention to, to these trends and, and to these larger concerns really do want to see uh, a Maine that is, that is friendly to the, the economy of the future. Well, and there again, I really hope that we can take some of the, the wisdom that you were sharing regarding the importance of putting all this money toward locally um, accountable institutions that, that have Maine in the future. I am excited that Consolidated, the, the telephone company that is currently providing a lot of the, the telephone service and some of the broadband in Maine, uh, it's the, now the big incumbent. They're doing some interesting partnerships in New Hampshire, and we've cautiously decided that we think those are a good thing the way they're structured. At the same time, I think Maine has so many great local companies. You have some real good municipal broadband networks and potential for so many more that we're really hoping that we see this broadband investment go to entities that are rooted in the future of Maine. You know, that's so important. I'm really, really, really excited about places like uh, Baileyville and Callis, um, who've created uh, their own broadband utility in one of the most far-flung rural areas, way down near the Canadian border, um, in the, the coastal region that is ba uh, uh, Baileyville and Callis. That area also happens to be served by Eastern Maine Electric Cooperative. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think they understand the value 
of, you know, taking it into your own hands and democratizing uh, infrastructure, whether that's clean energy infrastructure or telecommunications. That's a really exciting one. Uh, there are others, though, that where there are municipal efforts, um, you know, Sanford, uh, the work they're doing with GWI. GWI was responsible for the three ring binder. Very, uh, very interesting work there. And, and Islesboro as Islesboro, well, and many yep, other towns. That's right. Yep. Um, there's a, a three bridged islands um, effort in um, Arousic, Southport, and Georgetown. That's uh, in in my my neck of the woods. Really excited about that. But you know, these you're right. There's an opportunity to do a whole lot more. And you know, I I think that Maine is a great destination. It is an incredible place to live. You know, Portland is one of the best dining experiences in 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 America right now. Um, our restaurants are struggling a little bit, but uh, you know, I, I think it, it just the the quality of life that we have here is so tremendous. And if we could see more of these uh, of, of these networks springing up, uh, I, I think that that we'll be in a much better position going forward. We're going to take a short break. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show, if you share in our vision of thriving, equitable communities in Maine and beyond, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce invaluable research and resources that we make available for free on our website. Please take a moment and go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. So I asked Jess if we could staple on one other topic to this, which which is something I've been wrestling with a little bit, and I feel like you're a good person to ask about it. As you mentioned, you're the um, the chair of the the House uh, committee, the the Joint Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Technology. Um, you you were a majority leader for one time. You were an assistant majority leader. I feel like you've seen a lot of different aspects of how the legislature functions. You know, you've worked you work in the private sector in 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 um, in, in in a fast moving technology. Technology, which is something a lot of people have sort of given up on government and they're sort of thinking that those sort of companies will be the future. And there's something that I've seen lately, which is I think there's some people who are kind of on a track to maybe do that work and they see these protests and they're kind of wondering, am I am I doing the right thing by going into those areas or would it be better to be make, putting my energy into demonstrating on the street and really, you know, making a visible show of solidarity with people. And, and I'm just curious how, how you think of that as someone who's seen how both how slow and frustrating change can be at the legislature, but someone who obviously sees a lot of hope for that as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Government does move slowly and, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, uh, two steps forward and one step back for sure. But um, it's been an incredible experience. And, you know, Maine, like many states, has a citizen legislature. So my work um, in the private sector does really keep me grounded on that side of things as well. And I think the it's exactly this kind of collaboration that's going to be needed to get the transition, uh, the clean energy transition right, and to and to get the, the transition to uh, a, a democratic uh, information future right as well. And, and there are these wonderful, scrappy uh, companies like GWI and Axiom and Pioneer and LCI that are... Um, you can't not mention Otelco now. Otelco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. Thank you. All, you know, doing great work to help, you know, to, to work with municipalities and, and other community groups to, um, to make it work. And, you know, in, in many cases, um, 
you know, helping to kind of level the playing field and reduce the amount of money that we're having to pump out of our economy, you know, for these larger ISPs. I, I do hope that Consolidated um, can move some things forward as well. But I got to tell you, the big cable companies, they have not been, you know, very helpful. And in fact, I think they've sued the state about four times over bills that we passed in the last uh, legislature alone, you know, uh, just trying to defend ridiculous billing practices and, you know, putting peg channels into digital Siberia and, you know, not wanting to have a uh, franchise agreements that serve the more rural areas. And, you know, that big ISPs throw their weight around in ways that is just, inc- it's incredibly counterproductive. And I, you know, I, I see the same thing with our, our energy utilities. You know, when you have a monopoly, um, you have a whole lot of power. And what is it they say? Power corrupts, right? You know, it, it's just, you know, these managers are responsible to very distant shareholders who don't particularly care about the people that they serve. And, you know, they, they want to see a, a strong quarterly return. And that's frankly all they care about. So um, it's very extractive and frankly, very abusive of, of the customers. So it is really about um, this exactly this this democratic effort that, that you guys are working so hard on. I, I love the Institute for Local Self Reliance work. Well, let me let me ask. Let's say that I'm I'm asking you for counsel, and I'm saying here I am, this person who back when I was in grad school, and I'm th- looking at the demonstrations now, and I I think that those are important. And what I'm about to say in no way suggests that we don't need people out in the streets. But if I was to say, you know, I I feel like I should spend my time organizing people mm-hmm. to go to marches and things like that, rather than rather than figuring out how a bill becomes a law in reality. Yeah, <laughs> and making I, it happen. I got you. Yeah. So, you know, I. I do think that um, change takes a lot of patience and a lot of attention to detail. Um, you have to be in it for the for the long march. You know, it, it is a marathon and not a sprint. And you know, think about you know Martin Luther King and the decades on decades that he worked. I mean, he he you know he gave it all, right? And if he were you know still alive today, he'd still be he'd still be out there, you know, looking to build something better and. You know, I, I applaud um, everyone who has gotten out there on the streets and, and, you know, showed their concern. But that only gets you to maybe, you know, a, a, a thought like pe- people maybe have a different thought. Right. You might you might change a change a heart or a mind here or there. But we really need a sustained effort to change the paradigm. Right. And to to create a democratic and just transition for the entire economy. You know, I think that energy and uh, telecommunications are a massive part of that. Obviously, healthcare, criminal justice, you know, there, there are a lot of different areas where you can really dig in and, and do the, the work in the trenches to, to create that better paradigm. But it doesn't come, you know, just because we, you know, we wave a sign. We have to do a lot more than that. We have to really engage at some level and believe in what we're doing and and see it see, see how it fits into that uh, democratic future that we all hope for yeah and i i just want to I'll, I'll turn it 
back over to <laughs> Jess here. But I, one of the things that I think about is that we, we need more people carrying signs. We don't need everyone carrying a sign to read John Farrell's long, um, you know, um, um, is, uh, the word just escapes me, but where you, um, comments that he files, you know, in, in different proceedings, but we do need a few people. <laughs> like, yeah, we, we do. We need some people doing that, that hard, boring work that honestly, it's not always obvious how it connects. Um, but you know, exactly. for, for the work that you're doing, um, we need someone to do the research as to how we can change the system to make it better along the way. Um, and yep. so that's what I just, I hope people are, are grasping that we need, we need more people in all aspects of this. That's so true. Yes. And, and every different skill set. you know, there's so many different ways people can plug in. If you have technical skills, you know, if you're really gifted, you know, as a communicator, if you have, you know, some legal background, if you're an engineer, uh, finance, um, you know, my son is thinking about, he just graduated um, yesterday, actually. And he's thinking about um, studying economics and political science. And I love it that he's interested in economics. He's really good at math. And, you know, so much of the the need for justice does revolve around people just understanding how the economic systems work right now. And the, the money that we are just, just pumping out of our economy um, for, you know, basic telecommunication service, basic, you know, energy infrastructure is, it, it's, it's, pretty shocking and you know and once you understand the problem it's a lot hard it's a lot easier to actually envision the solution but these are the systems that have kept you know black and brown people and 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 other you know historically poor people down for so many generations and it's exactly what we need to be confronting and and working to change yeah, as a as a communications person, I think, you know, I'm always thinking about like what the optics of anything is and how you get people to care about anything. And, you know, I don't want to a protest any like street protest is the result of long term organizing, which is really hard work and takes that long vision of what you're trying to build. Right. And B is like the best, <laughs> you know, like I wish I could get someone to scream in the street every time we're releasing a new report with that really, really important information that most people aren't going to read, you know, like. Right now, I'm not thinking that much about XL Energy, even though they supply my electricity. But if someone was screaming in my yard about XL Energy right now, I'd probably be like, well, we should go learn more about XL Energy, I guess, you know? So it's it's not really a separate thing. It's all it's all working it together. Is. It, it is. And I, I guess, you know, part of what I'm struggling with is like, if we could get people out in the, in the street, you know, um, to, to protest Exelon or, or Central Main Power or like, you know, you know, Spectrum, Comcast, you know, uh, or Comcast cable, you know, I mean, the, the, the abuses that some of these large monopolies, you know, inflict on us, that would be incredible. That would be really transformative. And to fight for, you know, a positive vision, you know, I, I think it would be wonderful if, if, um, if we, we could, because these are, these are really, they get into really esoteric areas, right? And so, you know, it is harder sometimes to, to sort of bring the masses there with you when you're, you're going down some, some technical utility rabbit hole. Man, you're uh, telling me yeah, right? <laughs> the communications person for this organization. Yeah, I, it's so important. Well, and, and let me just say that that uh, six, seven years ago, there was a sense like no one's ever going to know what net neutrality is. And I have gone to parties in which I heard people talking about net neutrality who were not techie people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's yeah. not – and I don't mean this is a slight against the communications people who told us that we could never get anyone to understand net neutrality because it was a bad term. It was just that uh -huh. there had to be a lot of work. There was a lot of boring yeah. work that was done to turn it into right. something that people paid attention to. And, you know, um, 
Consumer-owned utilities are, I mean, that's a, that's probably a few too many syllables, but I think that's a really powerful frame. And, you know, when I talk about consumer-owned utilities, whether that's, you know, electricity um, and, and clean energy transition or, or you know, telecom utilities, I, I think that is just an incredibly important uh, way to talk about these things. Utilities aren't, even consumer-owned utilities really are not government in the way that that people think sometimes negatively about government right they're they're kind of quasi governmental you know the the uh, smaller consumer owned utilities here in Maine that provide power are very very popular with their you know with their members um, and and do a great job and I and I think you know the the there, there are some other ways to talk about consumer owned utilities people talk about public power for example I don't think that really uh, is as accurate or as helpful, frankly, because the magic of a consumer utility is it's it, it's got it, it's got a little bit of business in it. It's not it's not all government, right? And it it actually is um, something that colors outside of the line of government as well in terms of finance. It doesn't use tax dollars, right? So, you know, we have this bond issue we talked about with, you know, where we're going to be investing, you know, 15 million, hopefully in, in broadband. And that's great, but those are tax dollars. And we're going to be heading into an economy where state government is going to be just bleeding, you know, financially. We are going to have such a hard time just funding our K-12 schools and um, funding our health and human services safety net in the next few years because, and we just went through this, you know, after the, you know, 20, 2007 crash, you know, state government uh, basically finances itself off of sales taxes and income taxes. And those are going to be down. They're going to be, you know, back in the toilet again. Um, sales are down, incomes are down already. So where's the money going to come from? Well, if you have a, a utility model, whether that's broadband or energy, you can finance it off of your future rates. You're borrowing at these incredibly low uh, tax-exempt rates, you know, two to three percent over 20 years. You're paying half as much as you would pay the utility to pay for that infrastructure. And you know, this is the stuff I really get excited about. I mean, it's super geeky and nerdy, but if you can do something for half as much, like why the heck yeah, wouldn't no, you? Is, I mean, this is crazy. so important. I mean, this is like there's a joke, not joke. There's a saying that the bonds really is what makes the world turn. And it's really important to understand that. I, I, a lot of people don't really understand debt, but if you are if you're borrowing money to build broadband mm-hmm. at at two and a half percent or three percent, which is just remarkably low rates, that means that you right. the broadband improvements to the economy have to be just mm-hmm. tiny in order to justify it. And anything above that is is, is gravy. It's just it's so much of a of a of a just extra benefit to the community. And so yeah, this is this is exactly. a time in which we can't we shouldn't expect Maine to be budgeting and appropriating for broadband. It should absolutely be borrowing at these rates because we know that this will grow the economy of Maine faster and will pay for itself. Exactly. I mean that's and this is this is these are things that again just from my own experience like it did take me years of of understanding how all these different systems come together to have an appreciation for that but knowing that is how you can get these things done right and it really is about justice you know i mean you think about the folks who are at the margins um for whatever reason you know whether that's you know uh, racial or economic the the uh the average mainer who is below federal poverty guidelines and we do have a lot of low income mainers um, they're spending a quarter of their budget right now on energy, and you know that's that's just not 
sustainable. If we if we do um, well-intentioned things uh, to improve our environmental profile, our our, our greenhouse gas emissions uh, that cost more, then we're going to really put those folks in a world of hurt. Right, but that's where a consumer-focused entity will have the incentive to make sure that they are getting those um, benefits of, of extra insulation, of 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 more exactly. energy-efficient appliances, and things like that. These incentives, yeah. they just they matter so much. They really do. You know, I'm, I've got a heat pump on the wall behind me, and you know, these things are pretty critical to making a fast transition for building heating and cooling. You know, to to electricity, and and then. You, know, you need more clean energy generation as well, but it's both it's both building you know solar and wind and other uh, storage and other forms of generation, and um, shifting people to using electricity for for you know heating and cooling like the heat pumps and for you know electric vehicle for transportation and and if it costs more uh, for that electricity because we're paying the utility uh, you know for for stuff that could have cost us half as much we're also not going to get there as quickly. Like, you know, as a poor person, I might think twice about, about, you know, getting a heat pump um, or getting an electric vehicle, or for that matter, as a middle-class person, I might think twice about it. So we want people to make that shift quickly and bringing the cost down is going to accelerate that shift to beneficial electrification. This, this took a little bit longer than I expected it to, but this has, I think, been well worth it. A lot of really good topics to to think about on broadband electricity and how we all need to, where we can all put our efforts. I just want to say thank you for all the work you're doing. You know, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is so important. And what you're doing is exactly um, in, it's at the center of the bullseye that we are aiming for here in Maine. You know, Mainers really value self-reliance. We have this kind of long, you know, stubborn streak of Yankee independence. And, you know, everybody's, you know, that real Mainers have, have like old cars up on blocks in their, in their front yard, because you never know when you're going to need that spare part, you know, you're, you're self-reliant or they have backyard gardens, you know, because, because, you know, you still have to can a few tomatoes just for, you know, just in case. And, you know, we really believe in self-reliance. And I think that, that we are at this perfect crossroads for both telecommunications and the clean energy transfer, uh, transformation to come together in this really um, empowered, you know, consumer-owned way, uh, this really democratic way. So I'm just so excited to be working with you guys on this and, um, and sharing ideas. And um, I'll, be, I'll be reading John Farrell's uh, long filings <laughs> at, at PUCs for a long time to come, I'm sure. Yeah, we are... <laughs> We are so thankful to have you uh, out there doing the work. Well, I, I will just I will just throw in that John and I both try to keep them humorous for those few brave souls that that wade that that wade into them. <laughs> very wise, very wise. Page forty-two, you got a pun. Right, right. <laughs> it's worth it, every word. Okay, well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Seth. I'm very much appreciate thank you. Great to visit with you guys. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available on our website. You can also help us out by reading this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Zach Freed and me, Jess Delfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Mm-hmm.